Welcome to the Family Life Church Podcast. We hope you're blessed and encouraged to share this with someone you know. Subscribe or visit thefamilylife.org for more information. Tonight, amen. We're going to turn to the book of Joel and... um, going to be reading a lot, maybe all, of the book of Joel. This is found between the book of Hosea and the book of Amos. It's a short book, only three chapters, um, but we're going to to do a, a simple Bible study out of a very complex book. Um, I spend a lot of time reading, and I read a lot of biographies, autobiographies about people who have achieved different types of things, and I, I came across this the other day, and I want to share it as, as we're, we're turning in the word of the Lord to the book of Joel, and the writer was writing about our addiction and our fascination with to-do lists. Anybody know what I'm talking about, a to-do list? You take out a piece of paper and you write down everything you need to do. And what it does is it gives you direction on the things that need to be done. Uh, But if you're like me, when you only get halfway through them in a day, it also leaves you feeling a little bit discouraged and depressed, right? Because to-do lists, we are addicted to them. We think they solve a lot of problems when really they can and they do give direction uh, but this particular uh, person who had had quite a, 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 an, a, an established and successful career said, I started, I, I did away and I threw away all my to-do lists and I started my not-to-do list. And he said, my life completely changed when I made a not-to-do list and followed that versus a to-do list. Because a not-to-do list is spiritual. We have one, the book of the Ten Commandments, right? We have them in the Bible, not-to-do list. But if you begin your day by writing down things or by planning your week about things you're not going to do, and you follow that list, you free yourself up to do wonderful things that lead you to better destinations, right? So I just want to encourage someone this week in your spiritual thought process between now and Sunday. If you might write down a not-to-do list, does that sound kind of crazy? It does, doesn't it? But what might be some things you, you maybe you decide not to do between now and Sunday to prepare your heart and your mind for what the Word of the Lord has for us on Sunday, right? You, you might cut a few things out, right? I know we all have a list. It's spring cleaning, and we're going to do this, this, this. But, but there are some things, and I, I was looking around in, in, in my life, and I was thinking, man, I've got a really busy week ahead of me. What's some things that I can make sure that I don't do that might put me in a better mind when I get here on Sunday morning? So I just share that. It's not my Bible study today. I'm, I suppose if I searched, I could find some scriptures about this. But, but the Lord himself gave us a list of 10 things not to do. But I think if you look through your day and your life, like I had to, um, uh, the not-to-do list uh, becomes kind of an important thing. Now, I have a quick confession, and, and this has nothing to do, and it's not my character, but I, I determined on Monday morning we had been back, and we were back on Monday morning. I'm not going to eat sugar on Monday. That was my thing, not-to-do list, right? Um, but the new guy in the office, uh, he's 25. His birthday was Monday. And so in our office, what we do is someone has a birthday celebration. So one person, they pick a name, they, they brought uh, Crescent Donuts. And uh, not only that, there was a cinnamon twist in there. 
And um, I, I have to tell you, that's my favorite donut. Well, he's from Mississippi, and his mother, uh, and I again, I swore I would not do this. I wasn't going to be trendy or I wasn't going to be a fad person. But his mother uh, is from Mississippi, and she Googled the best cookies in Bloomington. Well, you know what happens next. This big box called Crumble came in. And um, I have to tell you, they had <laughs> some pretty fantastic cookies in there. And so what started out with the best of intentions turned very quickly into um, a complete uh, disengagement from that commitment. It happened just that quick. And so as you're putting your not-to-do list together, uh, just know that that's typically when things come your way and temptations are there. And so it didn't take very long because then, you know, you have your mid-morning snack, which should be almonds, turned into a half a cinnamon twist, and then you have lunch, and then by the time you have hot tea at three in the afternoon, it's not hot tea, it's hot tea in a half cup or a half crumble cookie, and then you're just like, okay, it doesn't matter anymore, right? Uh, that's what happens, and, and these things occur in our lives. So when we think about what, what we're not going to do between now and Sunday, just know the adversary knows exactly how to lay things in front of us. Now, that's very simple and, and very plain and very, very simple type uh, explanation, but just always be aware of the things that you can cut off. That's why Jesus said it this way, if your right hand offend thee, cut it off. Right? There are things that you can begin to cut away that you know are not leading you in the right direction. We all have those. Okay, um, the book of Joel. Uh, I want to teach a very simple Bible study tonight out of a very complex, a very graphic, a very descriptive book. Um, and my, really, my theme today is uh, in the midst of sovereignty, that, that God has a call and that God has spiritual uh, blessings in the midst of sovereignty. So uh, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethiel, hear this, he says, ye old men, and give ear all ye inhabitants. So immediately Joel is not, not trying to separate ages. He says, old men, and then he says, all the inhabitants of the land. Hath this been in your days or even in the day of your fathers? Has this ever occurred before? He asked that question. Rhetorically, he knows that it hasn't. But then he says, tell ye your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children yet another generation. Something so significant has happened that I don't want this story to be lost and the transition of generations. I want this to be fervent. I'm telling you to make it real. I don't want you to lose details. I want the severity of what I'm getting ready to describe to not lie dormant after one generation. Because the risk in every transfer of truth and every transfer from one generation to the next is the loss of value and severity. That's why it is so important, and we're going to read this actually a couple times in the book of Joel, that we understand the value of young people, and we understand the value of senior people. We need to understand where we fit generationally and age-wise in the kingdom of God. 
As one man said, the youth have energy. The elders have wisdom. We need to learn to combine these things together to see God do amazing things. Amen? We, we live in a world, uh, let me say this, I don't want to lose friends. I don't want to climb out on a limb, but please understand what I'm saying when I say this. Uh, and pastor has talked a lot about this. We live in a world of divisions, right? Division, 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 division. How can we divide people? Uh, uh, the book of Corinthians, there's divisions among you. But even today, whether it's race or gender or income or wealth or this or politics or that. But you know what's beginning to creep into the world right now is ageism. This division between this generation and this generation. And I don't want to go too deep down into this, but, but one generation looks at another generation and says, man, here's a good example. You work 60 hours a week. Now, for us, that might seem like, now that's a hard worker. But a younger generation who's getting the job done with technology would say, what's wrong? And then this generation who's used to very long, serious working hours might look down to people who are reading the four-hour work week, which doesn't work, by the way, the four-hour work week and think, what? You, you don't even know what full-time work is. That's just one issue that is in front of us today. It confronts us as people. And this is where divisions are really beginning to, to pop up. And, and, and even now, name-calling, uh, we call each other names in the office, and they're all flattering names that would mean them funny. They call me Gen X. I call another one a millennial. The other person we call a boomer. It's now names that we say to one another instead of, hey, Mike, hey, Josh, hi, Ryan, how's it going? Because it's the way that we tease each other these days. I'm telling you, my brothers and sisters, be on the lookout and listen for this. You're going to begin to see these divisions erupt. And this is why Joel says to the old men and to all the inhabitants, I'm not leaving anyone out based on age, based on experience, based on who you are. Every single person in the land, listen and tell this story for generations to come. Amen. Um, he says then in verse 4, that which the palmer worm hath left hath the locust eaten, and that which the locust hath left hath the canker worm eaten, and that which the canker worm hath left hath the caterpillar eaten. So he gives that description, and one of the things we know about nature that is so powerful is nature doesn't waste. Nature has a way of eliminating whatever needs to be eliminated. He then says, awake, and listen to this, you drunkards, and weep, and howl, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up upon my land, strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he hath the cheek teeth of a great lion." He hath laid mine vine waste and barked my fig tree. He hath made it clean and bare and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. Lament like a virgin girded with a sackcloth for the husband of her youth. The meat offering and the drink offering, listen to this, is cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests, the Lord's ministers, mourn. The field is wasted. The land mourneth. The corn is wasted. The new wine is dried up and the oil languisheth. 
Be ashamed, O ye husbandmen. Howl, O ye vine dressers, for the wheat and for the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine is dried up. The fig tree languisheth, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree, and the apple tree. Even all the trees of the field are withered, because joy is withered away from the sons of men. This is an amazing invasion, a catastrophe that came in the form of locusts. And we begin to see all the fields. We begin to see the reality of this plague that hits the southern kingdom of Judah. He then says in verse 13, he gives a word. He says, gird yourselves and lament, ye priests. How, ye ministers of the altar, come and lie all night in sackcloth, ye ministers of God, for the meat offering and the drink offering is withholden from the house of your God. I want you to get this image. Now, even now, even now, the ministers and the priests cannot even bring the sacrifices necessary to hold back God's judgment because of the reality that has happened in the land. My brothers and my sisters, this is a picture, this is an image of harshness, of devastation, of catastrophe, of people who find themselves without even the means necessary for the ministers and the priests to sacrifice to pull back this judgment. Now, this isn't a really exciting message. It isn't something that we think about in 2022 when the praises are high and everyone's excited and we're doing better probably than we've ever done. This is not the kind of message we like to hear, but you remember I said a couple weeks back when I was speaking, we aren't going to fail or we're not going to be led astray by failed ministries. We'll be led astray by followed ministries This man, Joel, this prophet, this man who was to give a message that was not going to be popular. It was going to be a message of change, but not a message of change in the way of myself. It's a message in the way of repentance. He says in verse 14, sanctify ye a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants, listen to this, and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry unto the Lord. In other words, we're not separating anyone here. We're to a point. We're to a point that we need absolutely everyone in the house of God. The only way that, that the judgment is held back is by sacrifices, and now we can't even do that. We're asking everyone here. And then he says, alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as destruction from the Almighty shall it come. And then let's go down to verse or to chapter number 2. He goes on, so there is the first part up to verse 13 is about the locust. Verse 13 down to verse 20 is about a drought that takes over the land. He talks about the seed being rotten. He talks about the barns being broken down. And he talks about all the things that are devouring all of the fields. My brothers and sisters, it is as apocalyptic as you can imagine. This he says, don't ever let the generations forget. This he says, transfer it to your children, your grandchildren, and your grandchildren's children, and even another generation. Don't let the severity get away. Because this happened 
in the midst of God's sovereignty. This is God allowing nature to do its thing. And we as humans in that land were feeling the difficulty of it. He then makes a big call in chapter number two. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Tell all the inhabitants again of the land for the day of the Lord cometh for it is nigh at hand. A day of darkness and of gloominess a day of clouds and of thick darkness as the morning spread upon the mountains. A great people and a strong there hath not ever been like before. Neither shall there be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. The fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. The land is as the garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Yea, nothing shall escape them. He goes on to describe their appearance and, and how difficult they're going to be and how, uh, how absolutely uh, enthralling that their, their uh, approach is going to be. There's going to be no way. You, they, they run up a wall. They go over the wall. These are men of war. These are men that run like horses. He's beginning to describe now a judgment perhaps even more frightening than the locusts. He says that they're going to run to and fro in the city They're going to rub on the wall. They're going to climb on the horses. They're going to do all kinds of things because God is still a God, quiet as it's kept in 2022, of judgment. Verse 12, he says, Therefore also now saith the Lord, and this is such a beautiful message from the prophet after this very dark reality that happened through the locusts. And now he gives another uh, prophecy about some real challenging times that could come. He says to them something that, that we should all embrace. Therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning and rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious, he's merciful, he's slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Now, I've got to tell you something. In my human mind, if I had just experienced what everything had gone wrong in this catastrophe, and someone came and said to me, the Lord is merciful, I'm not sure I would believe them. I'm not sure people in the world would even believe in a merciful God if if the swarm of locusts had done the damage. And he says he's slow to anger of great kindness. This is what atheists have such a hard time with about God. It's not that they don't necessarily believe in institutions. They don't like them. They don't necessarily believe in them. But people who are true atheists who don't even believe in God would say things like, How can there be a God with such suffering? How can there be a God when these things go wrong? That's exactly what what Joel is trying to say to them. There is a God who in the midst of his sovereignty of all this judgment, there is a God who is still gracious and merciful and he has great kindness about him and, and he will turn things around for you. And atheists would say, no, I don't believe it. But thanks be unto God, we've experienced it and we know it. The judgment that you and I were facing as human beings without the broken, bleeding body of Calvary was insurmountable and immeasurable. 
But thanks be unto God for his love and his graciousness and his mercy and his loving kindness. We understand this God who, even though there's a lot of judgment going on, is sovereign and finds a way to have mercy on those who serve him with all their heart, who fast, who weep, who mourn, who rend their heart. There is still a call in the midst of of sovereignty for that. Verse 15 of chapter 2, Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly. Can I just say this real quick? It's just so important we get together. Sometimes I think we feel like we can do this on our own, but my brothers and my sisters, when we see a move of God, when we see a collection of the saints of God, when we see the power of a gathering, we begin to know Sunday morning isn't just an option, it is necessary. And being here in a good mind, in a prayed through, or at least a heart uh, uh, opened and rendered out, a heart when you come to the worship service, be ready to, it is so important that we come here to gather to see the things of God. This isn't optional. This isn't something we just might do because the weather is good or bad or we might or might not see someone or we like or don't like someone. It is important that spiritual things happen and spiritual things happen when God's people gather together. That's why Joel says the old men, all the inhabitants, we need everyone there. Now he says, call what a solemn assembly. We're going to get some things done in the spirit. We're going to rend our hearts. We're going to talk about the things that we need to confess. We're going to have a spiritual time together. We must have spiritual gatherings. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, let the bridegroom go forth and have his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, spare thy people. Because, you know, when we collect together and we get serious and we get to a place that we're as concerned about the people out there as we are about our personal successes, when we collectively come together and say, God, we want you to spare the people. We want you to save people. We want you to draw people. There is nothing like a gathering of prayer warriors and intercessors that are not interceding for the next thing for themselves, but are interceding for people who don't even know that they need to be here, are interceding for people who know they need to be here and they're not, interceding for people who are comfortable on the outside instead of being on the inside. When we get together in a solemn assembly and say, God, wake up the backslider, shake the backslider, just like you promised in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, you would make the blanket too short on the bed. There's nothing like trying to sleep with a blanket that's too short and your feet are cold that you can't do it. That's what the book of the Bible says about the backslider and the way that he begins to deal with a backslider. Make them think, make their sleep uncomfortable, cause them. We tell people, I hope you get a great night of sleep. Maybe we should be saying, I hope the Lord wakes you up in the middle of the night and lays me on your heart and you call and we'll have prayer at two in the morning. That may be a is what we should be saying. God, deal with backsliders, deal with lost people, but we've got to come together. This is the power of the solemn assembly. He then says, after they weep between the porch and the altar and spare thy people, O Lord, 
Give not thine heritage to reproach our inheritance that the heathen should rule over them. We don't want them to be lost. Wherefore should they say among the people, where is their God? Isn't that sad? What a description. What a description. Don't let the heritage, the inheritance, go to reproach. Because if that happens, then heathens will rule over the children of God, and they will say, where is their God? They had an inheritance. They had a legacy. They had a spiritual position. Where is their God now? Think of that devastation, this prayer. Spare thy people. Don't let the inheritance go away. That's why he's saying in the very beginning, this has got to go from generation to generation to generation. You know where I'm going with this in just a moment. And that's why, in Acts, I'm sorry, Joel chapter 2, verse 18, let's go forward. Then will the Lord be jealous, praise God, for his land and pity his people. Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, I will send you corn and wine and oil. Remember the devastation. And ye shall be satisfied therewith, and I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. But I will re- remove far off from you the northern army will drive um, and will drive him into a barren land, a land barren and desolate with his face towards the east sea. And he goes through and describes what he's going to do to their enemies. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice for the Lord will do what? Great things. Be not afraid, he says, of the beasts of the field and the pastures. Be glad, he says, children of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord, for he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. Look at what God is restoring here. All we do is repent. And then he says, don't worry about the beasts. Don't worry about the enemies. I'm going to replenish. I'm going to give back. But it all comes on the heels of repenting and emptying ourselves of worldliness, of ungodliness, and the things that we need to get out of our hearts and our minds. That's where it begins. A solemn assembly, people coming together, praying and asking God to forgive them for their sins. I wonder... What's just on the other side of of that prayer? And the floors shall be full of weed, and the fat shall overflow with wine and oil, and I will restore to you the years, the years that the locust hath eaten, the cankerworm, the caterpillar, and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among ye. And, And then let's go down to verse number 28, because this is what you know Joel best for. After this replacement of things that were lost in this sovereignty, this is what we know, Joel, for. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Remember what I said earlier about the, about the separation in ages and why we have to be careful? Everyone's involved here, my brothers and sisters. Every gender, every age, everyone is involved in the spiritual blessings of God. We've got to understand that it is God's perfect plan and will for us to experience spiritual blessings. But it doesn't come if there is a division among young and old. It doesn't come with a division between male and female. God is desiring a solemn assembly 
that is going to repent. It's going to call out for the lost. It's going to pray. It's going to turn from its ways. He's going to restore. And then what do we see? We see a spiritual outpouring that is without description. But it all comes on the heel of us doing things or not doing things. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days, I will pour out my spirit and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance. And the Lord hath said in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Now, you know what we have to do now. Let's read. The only other time we hear about Joel, this particular Joel, it's Acts chapter two and verse number 14. After they were all filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost and they were speaking in other tongues. That's right. That was the evidence on the day the church was born was was they were speaking in other tongues and they were speaking every man in a different language. It was an amazing sight and people were astonished. What is going on? These people look drunk. They look disorderly. Look at these people. And then Peter stands up and says, he lifted, he lifts up, well, let's read it specifically. Peter standing up with the 11, lifted up his voice and said to them, you men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken unto my words. For these are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken of by who? The prophet Joel. And then he says, as Joel said, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know what Peter also said on the day of Pentecost? And I find this interesting. He says, for the promise is unto you, to your children, and to all that are afar off. Joel thought generationally. Peter preached and thought generationally. That's why he said, don't let any generation lose the seriousness of the locusts. And that's why Peter when he's preaching on the day of Pentecost, preaches from Joel. We know the story well. We can quote that. We know the former and the latter rain. We know that he would pour out his spirit upon all flesh. So this is that. Joel was prophesying about a spiritual event that was going to happen. And Peter stands up. Of all the things that Peter could have quoted, of all the things that Peter could have said under the unction and the anointing of the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost, he quotes the prophet Joel and says, this is it. After repentance, after turning around, guess what's going to happen? The Holy Ghost is going to fall. And that's exactly what happened. It was the evidence of the prophecy of Joel. That's why if someone tells you this isn't real, 
Listen, we've seen and heard all of this stuff. Four times people receive the Holy Ghost in the book of Acts. One time they seem drunk. Three times they seem don't. I've heard all these arguments. My brothers and my sisters, all it takes is the collective um, the collective connecting of scriptures to see exactly how God orchestrated the gift of the Holy Ghost, the outpouring of his spirit. It was prophesied by Joel. It happened on the day of Pentecost. It happens four times in the book of Acts. And that's why the one man says, Peter says, it fell on us as it did in the beginning. It was no different in Acts 2, 8, 10, 12, 19. It was the same method, the same pattern. It was what Joel prophesied about. If you ever need a Bible study, just correlate the outpouring or the infilling of God's Spirit. That's something on your to-do list. In the midst of sovereignty and challenges. I want to read one one last verse to you very quickly that I found very interesting. In all of, in all of this, Joel moved on by the, the Holy Ghost, um, he was speaking to nations, and then he was speaking to people, and then he picks this back up about nations. And I think this is kind of where we find ourselves today. This is Joel chapter 3 and verse number 14. It is an interesting verse, and on its own, if you didn't have any context, you could preach it like crazy. But there's context around it. He was talking about all the nations of the world and and how they were conducting themselves and how they viewed what had happened to Judah. And it says this, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And I read that this last week and I thought about multitudes. Many people, nations, populations in the valley of decision. You know, it's one thing for you to be in the valley of decision. It's another thing for you and perhaps your spouse to be in the valley of decision. It's even yet another thing if it's you and your spouse and your whole family are having to make a decision. You're in the valley of decision. Anybody ever been in the valley of decision before? Yeah. You might find yourself there right now. Something else when the place that you work is in a valley of decision. It's another thing when the city you live in is in a valley of decision. It's even yet another thing when the state you live in is in a decision then the nation. We're going to stop at nations. You know what I found interesting about being in the valley of decision? The larger the number of the people involved, the more disconnected I can become. Right? I'll make great decisions for me. Hopefully I make great decisions for my spouse and my family trying to do my very best to make great decisions as, as a citizen in my city, trying to do the right things. But the further we get out from the decision being close, the easier it is to say, I'm going to let somebody else make the decision. Right? 
The more people involved, perhaps our personality is to become a little less involved. This is why, my brothers and my sisters, it is so important for us to remember that we are in the world, not of the world. We are citizens of the United States, the state of Indiana, Bloomington, Indiana, wherever. We're citizens. But no matter what the world does and decides, we have to be under God's laws. We have to live by the Scriptures. And the Scriptures don't always agree with things that we want them to agree with. Either way. So, as we go forward as citizens, and as we view a world that finds itself in the valley of decision. It's one thing to jump and be a part of the big crowd. It's another thing to take a step back and say, okay, I'm trying to, to do my best in the valley of decision. I haven't always done my best in the valley of decision. I would ask, if I were asked who else has not done the best in the valley, every one of us have made poor decisions at different times in the valley of decision, haven't we? How easy it is to make a mistake there. When we find ourselves my brothers and sisters, in a valley of decision. This is why he's saying this. It's so easy when all the nations of the world are coming around to say, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Let's get a consensus together, a quorum as they call it. Let's, let's get a consensus together. What does the word of the Lord say? And that is what we must humble and repent ourselves to the point of. Okay, Lord. My feeling may be this, but today I'm going to humble myself to the Word of God. And that humbling to the Word of God may not be easy. I may not want to follow peace with all men. They made me mad. But the best thing to do is follow peace with all men. We like the last part of that verse. Without holiness, no man shall see God. The first part of that verse, follow peace with all men. You see, the word of the Lord is living. It's alive. And you can open it up and you can find answers to absolutely everything that you are contending with. Because of the living feature of the word of God, it will give you direction. And so I just want to say, and this is a little bit of a side note, for someone who finds themselves, don't be surprised if you're in the valley of decision. But just remember, in the valley of decision, it's easy to shrink when the multitudes are big. But at the end of the day, repenting, rending your heart, and everything you have unto God, as Joel has, has preached to the people of Judah, that's where you're going to find your answer. That's where you're going to be blessed. That's where you find deliverance. It's in repenting, rending your heart, weeping, mourning, fasting, doing everything that is, is asked, gathering in a solemn assembly, praying, giving ourselves unto God. And even when you're in the valley of, of decisions, the scripture says the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Obviously, some people... When we talk about the day of the Lord, some people think it's the last day or the rapture. Oftentimes, really, when you read 
in the, in the Old Testament when it's Amos or Obadiah or Isaiah or Jeremiah talking about the day of the Lord, they don't just mean one figurative day way out in the future. They also mean the practical meaning of when the day that the Lord has his way, his sovereignty, the day the Lord fixed it, the day the Lord changed it, the day the Lord did a particular work or a particular judgment. That's why we have to be careful about the day of the Lord. And if you read the, the scripture and do another correlation of the day of the Lord, you'll see what I'm talking about. But the reality is when we submit ourselves to the day of the Lord, that's when we're going to see great revival happen. So Joel, a man we don't hear much about, just three chapters and one quote of the New Testament, reminded us that it's so important that every generation understand the severity of what can happen and the necessity to repent in in the midst of sovereignty, it is repentance that makes the difference. And lastly, if you find yourself in a value decision, and this is a little bit of a side note, make sure you find yourself obeying the word of the Lord and not just the voices of many. Because the voices of many can lead a wrong direction, but the word of the Lord cannot. And you know the beautiful thing about the word of the Lord? It's available to you and it doesn't change. Amen. There's not going to be a new series. There's not a thriller at the end that you can't read. There's no big surprises. There's no plot twists. The Lord does his sovereign work, but we know exactly what happens when we read the word of the Lord. Amen. Praise God. Stand with me if you would. Let's want to dismiss tonight in prayer, but before I do, is there anyone that has come to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for remission of your sins? We're here to do that. If not, let's give a hand clap offering unto the Lord. Amen. A hand clap offering unto the Lord. Amen. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for Joel the prophet. We thank you for the word. We thank you for the prophecy that was true. We thank you that, that what he prophesied in, in, in Joel chapter 2 happened in Acts chapter 2. We thank you today that you made yourself known one more time in great gulfs of time differences that the message that Peter had was the message that Joel said. It wasn't lost in a generation. We're so thankful, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you tonight.